Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 16 Staying with the Wonder The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tail and the Tongue this series of episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words, and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. Dear Daniela, I've been collecting bottle caps these days to keep bringing the sea closer to this marshy city. Yesterday I brought back several from a long journey to reach a lake as well as some strange, very hard mushrooms growing on the trunks of some trees. My fascination with these tight, mushroom-smelling forms is mingled with a delayed guilt at having uprooted them from their habitat. Taking them with me will stop them from growing to the size of a stepping stone. Despite our recent conversations about the legitimacy of the assumed right to know everything, I myself fell into the trap of the assumed right to steal beings from the symbiotic realm, as you call what we also call nature. It is accurate for things to have several names, precisely because each word brings a different meaning. I guess I was betrayed by my curiosity to show you these fungi treasures when you return from your trip. But curiosity is ambiguous. It has big risks, as cats already know. It also complicates things in unexpected but welcome ways. Curiosity makes us eavesdrop and intrusive, diverts us from the straight and narrow, makes us perceive the extraordinary within the ordinary, even makes us change our minds. Do you think curiosity is a crossing point between seeking and finding? I feel it is an indispensable attitude to stay with the wonder, an idea of yours that is much more than an idea. It is perhaps a way of being in the world, an unstable position that makes and unmakes given realities. Someone told me that curiosity was a type of youth, and I think that if you stay with the wonder, you age youthfully. Since last week, when we went together to the Sea of Koti to compose a sound shore by placing bottle caps on the escalators, I stayed with the wander. 
And here I am, aware that I'm using only part of the meaning you give to this statement. Because wonder embraces marvel, but also ongoing questioning. By sharing what we did with others, our shore keeps moving. As we also move this conversation around different places, inspired by the podcast with Luth Broto, who told me about you the very day we met. Thank you very much for proposing to make a shore together before your departure. Sometimes I forget that we can create aesthetic experiences for the sake of it, from a living desire and not from the borrowed urgency of the work or from art prescriptions. Now the bottle caps are also part of our sea, fresh and salty waters that we started to move together months ago. It is ironic and beautiful that we lived near the same sea for years without getting to know each other. And that the same sea adopted us both, having grown up in inland areas, you in Colombia and me in Galicia. But you don't have to be born near the sea to have a strong connection with it. All earthly beings have an amphibious past, including us. As you showed me, our bodies are estuaries. We receive fresh water and turn it into salt water. As a child, I had my own inland sea. It could be heard from a distance between cars and roads. I like how the language makes inland and island very close. There's only one letter difference. It was precisely thanks to the form of language that you gave me an answer to a question I have been wondering about for years. An alternative for the word resource. Changing the container as a way of changing the content. So long looking for it, and the solution was in the word itself. Source instead of resource. In Spanish, this play with language works differently. Recurso and curso. But it also loses the utilitarian aspect of the resource in an uncontainable flow of life. I think about the way you understand water as a force that is neither alive nor dead. And how force rhymes with source. Force brings water back to the source. Formal associations and language lower the voices of rational reason. They amplify the voices of instinctive, sentient reason. The connection between our body and the ground is in the soles of our feet. In Spanish, feet have plants and therefore make roots. In English, feet touch the soil and therefore have minerals. All these associations come and go from your barefoot walks in so many places including our stroll through Templo Fafeld. Walking barefoot for a while made us feel the inside of our shoes differently afterwards. Another time, we swapped shoes to make our different wishes come true. My shoes allowed you to be closer to the ground, and yours allowed me to be taller. Going back to images reminds me that language needs not only a form, but also a context. They say ideas are immaterial, And yet they form in our bodies and stay alive because they travel from body to body. Isn't the human body material enough? When you sent me that video of a bottle cap stranded on the underground escalators from front to back, I was walking on an Atlantic beach full of shells. It wasn't just me. It was those shells that unlocked the secret that Berlin also has a beach and shells of its own. Could this experience be part of the untamed listening that you propose?
In starting to write this letter, which is for you, but also for anyone who wants to listen to us through your voice, I was trying to recall things I said to you in my voice notes. This has not happened. I let myself be driven again by writing, which adds its will and intentions to my own. And here writing is like weeds. It grows unapologetically between my hands and my computer. As you showed me, weeds teach us many things, among them to grow horizontally and to take up space without asking permission. Growing horizontally is something I learned from a friend. It meets another question that keeps me with the wonder. How not to refer to backwards and forwards when we talk about our lives? Maybe the crabs can tell us something, like the snails of Tevisa, that were part of your project. Since we talked about weeds, they have become a huge presence in my day. They were always there, but I couldn't see them. Weeds have become a source of political imagination, a presence that reminds me that it is possible to parasite given structures. I wonder if weeds would rather prefer to remain invisible to us. Being invisible holds a quiet power the possibility of going unnoticed in a reality that promotes visibility. As I already told you, a friend of mine also says that weeds can teach us something, to become feral in a taming society. Before my writing decided to go another way in this letter, I was intending to tell again some stories that I told to you. But not doing so keeps the secret. However, it is not the mystery of my stories that is important here but the possibility of not telling something or of telling it half-heartedly. Not knowing everything stops being uncomfortable and becomes a way to stay with the wonder. I stop here a bit suddenly. A summer storm has just started. Perhaps these drops bring to Berlin the waters of so many rivers that are important to you. See you in the future to share flavors, wishes and stories. In the meantime, enjoy the unknown very much and the feeling of moments that are both warm and refreshing at the same time. Weedy yours, Sonia. Hello, Sonia. Thank you for the very stimulating exchange. Your reflection on Recurso y Curso is indeed a beautiful addition to the source resource reflection. I was thinking the word Curso, which in English is course, it makes me think of a source in flow, no, a force in motion. But course could also be understood as a lesson, right? Something that you attend to learn something Something that reminds me to the connotations of source, which is something that has a value in itself and carries valuable knowledge. Regarding the story you shared, I find it beautiful that your precious memory of water took place through someone else's body, no? It's as if you were the chorus or the medium of this encounter of your friend encountering the sea for the first time. It must have been beautiful. Regarding my relationship with water and the moment I treasure, 
It is actually hard to name just one moment, so I'm going to hack a bit the question and name three. So the first one actually takes place in a dream-like dimension, and it's a recurring dream I had or vision before sleeping throughout my childhood. So it's a vision that actually lulled me before falling asleep. And this dream that I had for many years was of spinning on my axis in a watery, gravity-free environment. When I got older and revisited this dream, I realized that probably it had to do with my experience in my mother's womb, and the water was the amniotic fluid. I mean, I will never know if the experience was a memory or imagination, as it often happens with memory and imagination that they're sort of stored in the same place in the mind, which I find it interesting. But I bring it here because it reminds me of what you brought up to the table the other day, of the human fetus or human in the womb as an amphibian, no? Before we are born mammals, we're a bit amphibians, swimming in this amniotic fluid and breathing through water. The second moment I want to share here was around 15 years ago. I was in a Colombian island called Gorgona, like the Greek deity. This island is in the Pacific Sea. And actually until the 80s, Gorgona was used to host a prison. Nowadays it's a very interesting and special ecosystem where the ocean tide responds very sensitive to the moon. So it goes up and down many meters. And in this environment is where a certain type of whale comes to mate and give birth to their calves, to their baby whales. Once I was there, I was swimming in this ocean, under the ocean, not so deep, but I felt and I sensed and I heard the sound of the whale from inside. This moment for me was very interesting because I knew that whales were very near. We were swimming in the same water. We were enjoying the same water. Also, I was amazed that my human ears were able to detect this sound. The third moment, um, which I actually tell in the text of Aqualiteracis, was more recently, maybe two years ago, when I had the chance to bath in the Bogota River. And a bit of context to understand why is this such a treasurable moment. This river is about 98% polluted. Actually, it is considered a dead river, which means that it cannot hold complex life. And... Within the imaginary, it's a river which you don't visit, you don't see, you don't contemplate with appreciation. Never in the wildest dreams would you think of bathing in it, because it is the sewage system of a 11 million population city. But I knew that at some point the river 
sprung. There was a source of this river and I knew that perhaps the first meters or kilometers would be clean before being polluted. So I went to look for this place and I found a spot in the kilometer eight asking local people and I was able to be hugged by the Bogota River waters. And this was truly magical. To bath in the river that is taken as a switch of a large city, I would say it's a quite defiant act and an act of radical trust to understand, to really trust on the direction and flow of the river, to understand the principles of a river and its current. Maybe it is a political act in the sense that doing this and sharing this experience has an impact that goes beyond my experience. I, in fact, would love it that all Bogotanos were able to do that. To see a river at its source, to be able to immerse themselves and be contained by its waters when it's still alive and clean. I know that many rivers have died and come back to life. I think this step would, could be a step towards that. When I shower, sometimes I really enjoy the ice cold water because it transports me to those experiences. No? I remember all the times that I've been under a certain waterfall or the Bogota River. The experiences I treasure. And in my daily life in Berlin, I really enjoy the hypnotic potential of water, which is basically when the sun reaches the water, there is this glittery game, this movement. There is refraction, dilatation, distortion. I guess I find it interesting because it reminds me that what we see is reflection and illusion and that the concrete is also malleable and that there are floating creatures and water worlds. There are more moments, but I'll leave it there. So when did water become part of my practice? So for several years before water became a narrative threat and a collaborating entity, a collaborating force in my work, I was making reflections about public space and the public realm. I always work with context-specific situations and I found it interesting to complexify the notion of the public, which in a way was understanding our civic agency in everyday life and there was an intention to redistribute power and to understand a bit what was our common. And I was interested in contrasting the understanding of the public in Europe and in Colombia, which are very different for many circumstances. And in 2018, when I returned to Bogota, after having lived in cities with a lot of water, Barcelona with its Mediterranean Sea, Amsterdam, which is literally under the sea, and with its many canals, and Cali, Colombia, with its affectuous relationship to water and the feeling that the Pacific Ocean is near, I returned to Bogota and I noticed the absence of a body of water in Bogota, which caught my attention. No? And researching all archives, I learned that Bogota was previously a swamp full of rivers. Some archives described it as, a, as an amphibious city with its main rivers, the Vicacha, San Francisco River, the Fucha, and Arzobispo River. And I learned that back then, the endemic people actually lived in the mountains, in the hills. Bogotá is a plateau, 2,600 meters above sea level, surrounded by mountains, and in the center there is sort of a plateau. 
So the swamp was dried up before and during colonization to enable urbanization on this plateau, which is when the rivers started to be used as sewage channels. Nowadays, the rivers are called caños, which are considered dirty, dangerous channels of smelly water. And this is a bit sad because, of course, there is an infrastructure or public mobility around them. The smell is how they make themselves present, which I find it interesting. And I was living in Teusaquillo, near the Arzobispo River, and it caught my attention that there were indeed two benches near the canyon. This was very exceptional, but of course these benches were actually giving their back to the river and facing a bank. This encounter was very telling, and with Juan Pablo García Sosa, one day we took two shovels and turned one of the benches so that at least there was an option to look at the river through one of them. It was an act to face the river and to give the canyon a status of a river again, which is a body of water you can sit and contemplate, no? an entity you can relate to. We named the action Ciudad Amphibia, and it was interesting that while doing it, the neighbors and even the police were very curious, asking us if we were going to rob the bench. It's interesting how the bench was part of the public awareness, but not the river. Because, of course, in many ways, water is and should be a common good and a basic collective right. No, Of course, we were not going to rob the bench just to turn it around as a permanent intervention. Weeks later, it was very rewarding to see a couple <laughs> making out in the bench while facing the river. Working with water has opened many doors for me to to work with the symbiotic realm, no? something that in many ways I was always attracted to, but I hadn't found the tone because I have always felt a close affection relationship to nature and the symbiotic and the non-urban environment. I grew up actually outside of Bogota, so very close to nature. And aqualiteracies arose from a mixture of factors. I had already been complexifying the idea of a river in dialogue with its environment, its current, the imaginary that surrounds it, and the notion of water as a living archive. And I was driven by the fascination of the impossibility of containing the concept as a single definition. And by that time, I read the text Corpoliteracy by the Cameroonian curator Bonaventure Soendiku in which he describes the body as a platform, stage, site, and a medium of learning, you know, a structure or organ that acquires and disseminates knowledge. Through it, I thought about aqualiteracies, which is, involves the capacity and ability to think and feel with bodies of water, you know, to read bodies. From that text, I came up with the term and began to weave it, at first with anthropologist Elisabeth Gajandroste, and then more on my own, in dialogue with a relation to various contexts. And I establish it as a living research that can nourish, can be nourished by several perspectives and experiences directly with water. Within aqualiteracies, there are five aspects that I've been describing. One of them is its water in relation to its physical and chemical environment. 
And the other one is water in relation to human and more than human bodies. And so what we can learn from our bodies about water and vice versa. And then water also as a surface of human projections and belief systems. And then water as a tissue of memories in hybrid temporalities, carrying histories of different generations. And then also the individual and collective affections and emotions linked to, to waters. So what have I learned about water through this? First of all, to complexify it and to be fascinated by it. To understand the value of embodied experience, because I have learned a lot by being in direct contact with water, by being in dialogue with it, in conversation with it. I used to refer to water as a living entity, because I very much recognize the agency it has and that it's a basic thing for life to exist. But now I think of it as a force. It's something that it has its own category, no? beyond animate or inanimate. I think water is definitely something that receives and channels information. So it's a force living in and out of us. And by calling it or understanding it as a force, I acknowledge it in its mystery and its wonder. Dear Sonia, thank you for all the stories you share. The one of the shoemaker, the one of the cajo of the kid. I I feel also that the cajo or this layer in between my my foot and the floor is some sort of uh, resistance, no? Some sort of layer that allows me to keep on walking barefoot. Uh, thank you for everything you share. I am recording this message in a random hof I entered here in Kreuzberg. This is actually a pleasure I have to enter these open doors and see what's inside. Uh, so maybe the sounds you'll be hearing uh, behind my voice are a common soundscape you might also find wherever you are. So you were asking me about my barefoot walk on the 1st of May and I have a couple of things to say about it. So I have a certain fixation or interest for la tierra or the earth in my practice and also in my life. I like it that within the word tierra you find earth, land and soil, no? All these entangled layers symbolically and also materially, no? Because the earth or the soil is multi-layered as we know. That fascinates me. In fact, curator Elena Gudio told me in an interview we had that there are actually some hormones that are awakened in the contact of the skin and the soil or the food in the soil. And I did a little research and apparently some studies suggest that the exposure to certain bacteria and microorganisms and also compounds actually do awaken some chemicals in the body from serotonin, dopamine, maybe even endorphins. So it's really great when you understand that soil is not passive at all and the intricate relationship of 
this communication between the chemicals of the soil and our own chemicals. I think soil is quite magical, to be honest. Mysterious and magical. And at the same time, I've been interested in, for many years, in the body as a means uh, that carries certain processes. The body as a barrier of knowledge. Me interesa pensar con el cuerpo. So in the morning of the 1st of May, very intuitively, as my own kind of protest, I walked barefoot throughout Kreuzberg. And during this walk, I was wearing a t-shirt that I sprayed the same day with a message saying, I am not a resource to extract. This is a phrase that refers to another work of mine, a text and a lecture performance. And I wanted to walk as my own protest of being a source and not a resource and having relationships that are based on affection and exchange and not extraction with others. And this was as well just a simple exercise and a little protest to remember that the public space is a commons, like I said, and a space that somehow should represent me and you and us. I do sometimes think that walking barefoot in public space can be a way to to understand that these very rigid conventions of concrete and all these public infrastructures are also malleable, no? They can also be a playground. So it is maybe a way to find the soil in the concrete. There is a part of the concrete that carries also part of the soil. Also a way to ground myself, no? To stand in my own feet that was more a part of an inner process and to, to find the strength in this contact of soil and fit. Plantarme con la planta de los pies. It's beautiful this thing you highlight about la planta de los pies and the possibility to ground uh, by standing with la planta over las plantas or over the ground in relation to the ground. And we have been speaking about uh, psychiatrist Francesco Skelles because he spoke a lot about the relevance of the feet in psychiatric processes. Um, he was actually very interested. I want to share a bit more about him because he revolutionized the asylum with his work in the Hospital San Alban by several ways. But for example, he co-created dynamics with the users. He didn't call the patients patients, but users. And he also shook a lot of these oppressive standards by which the users weren't having a dignified life. And he proposed this participatory system where the users could take part in the decision-making processes. He proposed in 1943 to transfer cognitive experience or cognitive knowledge to the feet. Because he said, when we go around the world, what counts isn't our head, but our feet, knowing where you step. It's interesting that he says this because he actually had to go in exile, escaping the Spanish dictatorship. And he mentioned that in the exile, for instance, the feet are the ones that cross borders. Coming from a psychiatrist, I find this pretty interesting. And to bring another reference from another location that is contemporary to Tosquelles in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, there was this Jungian communist psychiatrist, Nisa Silveira, who also gave a very special place to the body in these psychical relations. She used to say that the mind 
touches the body and that is like something that shakes these mental narratives and so is when the world is incarnated i find this very interesting this relationship of mind and body the chemicals of the soil the chemicals of the mind the movement of the waters inner waters and the exterior waters i think there's many possibilities in which the body produces knowledge and makes us uh, process things Walking for me also has been very close to my practice and a means I used in my performative research. I have been walking several distances, crossing the Pyrenees and crossing places through the railroads. I think walking is amazing because it's the most basic unit of movement, no? And when you walk a lot and you cross borders, you realize that actually if you have enough time and patience and maybe physical strength, you could go around the planet walking. Walking is it is the basic unit and it is also one of the slowest units. This slow pace allows you to sort of develop a relation with everything around you. So I believe it's also a way to establish an affective relation with with a certain land or territory you cross. Recently, I've been also very interested in the relationship between wonder and wonder, wonder and wonder. I like it linguistically or how it sounds, but I've also been liking to walk without a clear destination, to let the wonder bring the encounters the wonder should have. And as you know, I have been developing certain artistic pedagogies around the unknown, the unknown as a method of embodied listening, the unknown as a method of investigation and as an experiment. I conducted this workshop called To Unknown the Green is Green. This was a conversation with a forest in Berlin, the Tiefpeer de Wiesen, uh, which I visited on several occasions before conducting the workshop. And while I was visiting it, the forest suggested that I should uh, offer during this time space an experimental encounter with the unknown. And so I started the workshop by telling that five years ago I was in Kochi, in the south of India, And I found this Ayurvedic doctor and I asked him for an advice. And he told me that every day I should stand in front of the mirror and repeat, you don't know anything. So to stand open and curious to every day. This is yeah very close to concept I've been feeling close to or an idea. And it's about a certain type of humbleness, not as a, as a submissive or religious humbleness, but rather uh, a way of staying close to the earth, no? humbleness close to humus, this fertile layer of soil. In humbleness as in accepting that we don't know everything and that we don't need to know to be solidary or we don't need to know to develop affection. Hello again, I'm in another hof because there was some noise around and I was telling you about this humbleness that I learned from Sana Hada 
where he says that humbleness doesn't need to be something submissive or religious, but is rather being close to earth. Humbleness as close to humus, this fertile layer of earth, which I find very beautiful. And that's something that I explored in this experimental time and space, how it is very Western and even colonial to want to know it all, this cognitive dominance, and that it is important to also stand, stay with the wonder, as in being open and being okay with not dominating it. So establishing a more horizontal relation with the environment. One of the things I proposed in this workshop was to walk barefoot and listening with the skin to the whole environment and elements and beings that were around the forest, animate and inanimate beings. Listening with the skin was also an approach that I brought in my lecture performance. If you listen to Neto's They Won't Sting You, that I presented two years ago in the Listening Biennale. And during this lecture that I conceived in conversation with an abandoned nettle garden, which could be considered a third space, I got interested by nettles because of their paradoxical imaginaries, no? How overlooked and invisible they are, and yet how present they are. How much they're related to pain and something fearful, but at the same time how medicinal they are. And also how they are close to the cosmovisions of the Amazon, but also to the ones in Berlin and in so many other places. Someone told me that there was this concept in anthropology of something that doesn't originate in a single place and spread, but rather that has different origins, that, that, it, that belongs to different places and it's entangled with different locations. And I think that's the case of Nettles. And in this abandoned garden, I developed this conversation with Nettles throughout a month in which I was sitting next to it. And I conceived the concept of untamed listening. And untamed listening, in short, can be described as this type of polyphonic listening that challenges the binarisms of active and passive and sender and receiver, a type of listening that recognizes the agency of all elements in sonic environments and acknowledges the temporal specificity of each listening experience. This is a listening that has the potential to deborder and the other and to redistribute attention by creating time and space for everyone and everything while challenging canons, preconceptions and categories. So this concept was woven with reflections about nettles and people were listening to stories about nettles with their ears and feeling their nettles in their skin and some of them drinking nettle tea. Nettles mean a lot to me and they're good friends, old friends and I have worked, I have collaborated a lot with them and I greet them every day without they stinging me and so I feel flattered when you say that I'm very weedy. I also feel that in a way you're very ortiga, in a positive way. And during this lecture I learned many things, uh, but one of them I would like to share is that there are plenty of ways in which we listen, and that in fact everyone listens, we just listen to different voices. There are inner and outer voices.
it's interesting what you say about Andre Lepecki and what he just suggests about people being super scared of total darkness because they don't know when the body starts or finishes how darkness proposes a particular immersion with the environment I find this really interesting Here I am in a third hof to mention that when I think with something, when I conceive theory around something, it is not with the intention of fully understanding it, of containing it, of enclosing it, but it's rather to conceive lenses to render visibility of its infinite nature, of its complexity approaching it, it's rather being contained by it. Hello, dear Sonia. Um, thank you for the many worlds you bring and inspirations. Or being feral, even if temporary, as you say. Um, the materiality of ideas through bodies. Um, conjuro, what a beautiful word. Uh, the water pots in Cadiz and the third spaces, among many, many other inputs. I wanted to start by telling you a bit little witty story which has to do with the traditional food of my hometown, Bogota. As you might know, Bogota's main dish is ajiaco. This is a potato, avocado, chicken, maize, capers, green soup, which is perfect for cold days. And ajiaco's secret ingredient is guasca. Guasca is like a particular herb, which is it's the secret ingredient. Therefore, it's, it's quite treasured. And actually, it's a herb that it's not found, it's not sold in supermarkets outside of Colombia. I haven't found it in the four countries I've lived and speaking with other migrants, Guasca is never sold, not even like in La Boqueria in Barcelona or these international markets. For some reason, Guasca doesn't arrive these places. So for diaspora Colombians or Colombians living abroad, it is very common that the auntie or grandma or mother smuggle some guascas in the suitcases when they're traveling to visit us or to visit someone so that their niece or son or daughter or whatever is able to do an ajiaco abroad. And actually this smuggling of food is a very, I think, cute characteristic of many Latin American mothers. That's how my mother-in-law is bringing all types of in interesting ingredients in her suitcases. But some months ago, I was walking through my neighborhood in Kreuzberg in Berlin, and you cannot imagine what I saw. I saw guascas growing in the sidewalk, a full wild garden next to my home. So of course, that week after, I did a big ajiaco with friends in Berlin, and I actually adopted some of the weeds as plants 
So I took some of the weeds that were growing wild in the garden nearby my home, the garden of Guascas, and I planted them in soil and I gave people this plant so that they can have it as a house plant. <laughs> and actually now I'm, I'm growing a weed in my little balcony. So that makes me think of that what is understood as a weed, it depends on the narrative no, of its cultural meaning. So here in Germany, Guasca is not recognized, therefore not used, therefore not treasured. But it's just a matter of seeing it no, and recognizing it. And this, I was thinking about this dichotomy of treasures and weeds, but maybe we can avoid dichotomies and rather think of weedy treasures. So I think my interest uh, back then when I adopted um, these huascas from the street for me and also for the friends I invited to the Ajiaco was a way of experimenting or embracing uh, what a closer relationship with weeds could be like, no, like uh, or an experiment to see if slowly the imaginary around weeds could be could, could shift or could be transformed, um, a way to to give attention to weeds. And you mentioned that for your father, or that your father says that nature doesn't exist, and that it's interesting. It, it reminded me of a conference I I saw when Timothy Morton says that he's very uncomfortable with the term nature, and instead of that, he uses the symbiotic realm, which I find very interesting. Symbiotic realm evokes many worlds, and I am very aware on how the term nature has been weaponized. And it has been misused and instrumentalized in restricting basic rights and in reducing diversity. But I was also thinking that it's important to, to reclaim back the term in an expanded way, of course, to de-weaponize the term nature. And... Related to that, I was remembering that my brother told me once of an indigenous community in Colombia for which spirituality had no word. And the reason for that is that their way of living already was always spiritual. So there was no need to do a distinction between spirituality and non-spirituality. It's a bit what you mentioned of the dissolution of dreams when they are translated to words, how this translation always falls short and takes over how it really was experienced and felt. And I relate this to your question about music. You asked me if I remember what does music move in me. And regarding to that, I would like to share that music for me has a similar function to, to dreaming, as in processing, processing my daily life. I like to think that I have some kind of internal radio that brings songs through which I kind of process emotions and affections, like a sonic processing or a sonic digestion. And it really happens. Many days I wake up with a song that I don't even like, but 
I think that there's something in it for me. Unexpected. And continuing with the unexpected, that is a topic or a point where we are always reaching through this podcast. I wanted to mention the difference between finding and searching. And for me, finding is more about letting things arrive to you, no? generating the conditions for things to come. And of course, being open and porous to how they emerge. And actually, this was a bit the case of the artwork. What do snails think about nuclear power plants? I was in Tivisa taking part of a program on environmental social practices. It was not an artistic program. And in fact, it opened me to other fields of action, which are actually very socially and politically engaged, I would say. Even revolutionary, as in redistributing resources or finding clear ways to clean polluted soils with mushrooms, for example. Very interesting projects. And... I was conceiving and working on my platform, Embodied Climate Agency. This platform that aims to diversify, decanonize and decentralize climate-related knowledge. And it was there while I was walking through the mountains when I witnessed and I was impressed by this oral way of transmitting official announcements through this sound system that is installed in all streets of the town. And of course, by the empty shells of the snails all around the town and by the central square also named as a snail. So the artwork actually came to me. The situation was just too interesting and I guess I was very open to receive it and I was feeling inspired and I made time for it. It developed in a very fluid way. You know, the conditions were there. I just had to set some attention and make a plan and I was thinking it's like an interstice of daily life, you no know, a space in between other things, space that creates space. Yeah, I like to think of art in such a way, as an interstice, or a space that makes other spaces available. And finally, I want to share a last story connected with the pots you were mentioning. And it's uh, in 2018, I had the chance to visit India on a research trip I was doing. Nearby Delhi, there was a place where I had these lassies, like a mango lassie. The place was like near the street or on the street. And actually, the glass in which I drank this lassie was made out of mud or clay. And apparently they told me that this container is like a more healthy way of drinking it. It's interesting how the container actually affects the content. Of course. And after I drank it, the man who gave it uh, smashed the glass in a container full of broken glasses of clay. He broke the glass and I noticed that the glasses inside this sort of bucket were also broken. And it caught my attention and I, and I asked him and he told me that because there wasn't a lot of water in the area, it was more economically and ecologically sustainable to actually destroy the glass and use that dry clay to make new glasses out of clay so it is very interesting no? how different systems and adaptations to the ecological conditions no? of working with the conditions instead of opposing them a bit like uh, syntropic agriculture
by the way, here from a private space next to a noisy street in Cadiz, I wanted to extend a bit on the idea of reclaiming and de-weaponizing the term nature. And I was thinking that a possibility to do so might be by recalling nature in its plurality. So instead of talking about nature, talking about natures. And therefore it might be less impositive and it might be less weaponized and less enclosing more more as a door, as an open door or as an open window or as a prison. Dear Sonia, thank you for sharing parts of your walk with your father and for asking me such a big question. What is spirituality to me and what is nature or natures to me? The questions are pretty big or deep and they're pretty personal. So it has taken me a while to answer them. Thank you for your patience. I would like to start mentioning that for me spiritualities are knowledge systems and frameworks of interpretations maybe semiotic tools that can help oneself dealing with non-visible but non nonetheless existing worlds and it is very important to acknowledge how spiritualities have been oppressive tools but also how they can be in a way emancipatory tools. What I mean with this is that our realities are organized in belief systems of all kinds. For example, neoliberalism is one of these belief systems, a belief system which follows the idea of exponential growth. But there are belief systems around us sustaining the practices that are carried on without being questioned. And I think holding awareness of one's belief systems is an important exercise to displace any sense of neutrality. We know that neutrality doesn't exist, nor objectivity. So maybe taking a time to reflect on these belief systems and maybe establishing your own set of belief systems that work for you can bring a certain autonomy. Acknowledging what works for you is very important also in taking into account this subjectivity of belief systems because when you are aware of this subjectivity, maybe belief systems are not imposed into others as sole truths, no, are seen within a more plural lens. Because this imposition of belief systems is something that colonialism did in some way, no, imposing a single belief system and homogenizing other belief systems that were there. So I have learned that these spiritualities, especially like plural spiritualities, are the colonial tools, as in reclaiming this plurality of voices that were erased.
And I was thinking about your question and I wanted to sort of organize my thoughts a bit without becoming too over-rational. So my kind of spirituality is a witty spirituality, a non-dogmatic, non-submissive, I hope, spirituality. I understand spirituality as a form or as a way of worlding, worlding with the immaterial, acknowledging that words and thoughts are acts of creations. I also understand spirituality as a form of listening. I'm talking in a way, but also mainly listening. Witnessing interrelations and expanding communications as a way of coding and decoding messages in simple things. I often carry in my pockets and in my bag pebbles and rocks and leaves and pieces of bark of trees and different things that speak to me. Also, these beer tabs different things not only things from the symbiotic realm but things that i find around me and i like to convey a message to them and to interpret them and to give them a certain meaning and then leave them somewhere so i like this kind of everyday life spirituality a spirituality that holds fascination for everyday life things no for simple things quote unquote simple I think another aspect of spirituality that is important for me is this fractalic understanding of things, no? Understanding us as bodies within a larger body, the planet as a living being beyond Lovelock's theory, addressing here more indigenous cosmologies. And finally, or not finally, another aspect is uh, spirituality is a way of staying with the wonder, being marveled by mysterious unfolding of things, a way to remain with the wonder. I enjoy spirituality also because there is a fascination I have with the synchronicity of time and space of things. That's just like a personal pleasure and listening in an expanded way. I notice that a lot of these elements are present in my artistic practice. And in fact, this has happened more in the last five years when I have found like the right tone and I have sort of understood spiritualities as decolonial tools because at the beginning of my artistic practice around 2010 I remember clearly some professors of the academy where I was studying my bachelor advising me strongly to to sort of detach and, and stay away from spiritual elements in my practice and rather to focus on the political side which has always been very present And I think they were concerned with the misinterpretations that spirituality could have. I understand this very concrete in the Catalonian context where religion was imposed and it was weaponized and it was a very violent tool. But I'm not talking here about religion. I'm talking about 
plural spiritualities. But anyway, in the recent years, I found a way to sort of address spirituality in my way. And if you look at my work, as we have been speaking through this podcast, what do snails think about nuclear power plants or on-time listening and aqualiteracies? They contain many elements which I describe here. Worlding and expanded listening and staying with the wonder. So I'm very glad to say that spirituality is very close to my artistic work and that I use it as a subversive tool of reclaiming the value of the non-visible, of the non-rational, of what cannot be instrumentalized. So it's a tool to reclaim the value of these things. Dear Sonia, I am looking at the Pacific Ocean while I record this message. I wanted to share some insights about what nature means to me. Maybe even to replace the message that I sent last night. So to make a transition between the previous question of spiritualities and this one, I wanted to share this anecdote which I already shared with you about how one of my first artworks was a homage to the sun, a tribute to the sun. It was in the context of my artistic bachelor when we had to do a homage or a tribute to something or someone that was important to us. And most of my classmates did a homage to a relative they had or to a celebrity. For some reason, I chose to do a homage to the sun. And it was sort of weird back then, like as if I had chosen a category that wasn't inside the exercise. And I think it's very interesting what you share about your father's opinion concerning nature being this construct that people of urban areas have as a place or as, as something they can willingly choose when to access as an escape of urbanity but that this construct is very different to those who are all the time in a rural environment. And I think it's important not to essentialize natures and also not to romanticize natures because this romanticization also generates this distance of these natures being an external place where to escape. I was thinking that maybe it might be better, or I don't know if better is the word, but it might be interesting to, to think of nature or to approach nature by looking inside and around of us, our nearest environments. And just like you, some years ago, I, I realized that there is really no distinction between nature and what is called artificiality as there are stones in the computers we use, there are trees in the books we read, and sand in the mirrors, and cotton plants in the shirts or in the clothes. So natures are, in a way, are everything inside and outside of us. 
but indeed it does feel different to be in an environment of we can call it unprocessed natures where actually the stones are being stones and the trees are being trees at least it feels different to my body in a way it, it calls me it, it humbles me this reminded me of the first time i had the opportunity to go to the amazon jungle in the putumayo region in colombia and it was very very special to feel like an ant among those huge trees the jungle is a feeling of nature which i find interesting because it is definitely not this over romanticized idea of nature in the sense that it is not a tame landscape and it is not super comfortable to be there with all the mosquitoes there are and the humidity in fact i think or i feel the jungle asks all the time what are you doing here which is always an interesting question So I like to understand nature as this network of sources. I'm talking about these unprocessed natures that has a function just by being there. And this is a distinction I would like to do because of course everything carries in a way the memory of natures. But when we're talking about these unprocessed natures, I would again like to bring this this nuance between a source and a resource. For example, in a forest, the tree performs a vital function of distributing oxygen and transforming CO2 into oxygen and providing fruits and flowers and being a shelter to birds and bugs and bacteria, providing shadow, many, many functions that, of course, a wooden surface also has several functions, but I think they cannot be compared to all that a tree can do while being a tree. And of course, there's different kinds of trees and different states. It's not to homogenize the idea of a tree. I was thinking of natures as these amalgamate of sources in relation, because that's another aspect of these unprocessed natures. No? If I place a shirt next to a computer, it is quite difficult that they establish a relationship. But if I place a stone with a cotton tree, maybe there are some relations between them. So I was wondering or speculating, remembering when I'm in the forest or when I'm surrounded in a space with this amalgamate of sources, I also in a way remember that I'm a source. It happens to me when I'm in a forest. It seems that existing is enough. And by existing in our own, say, specificities or in our own authenticity, we perform a function, but it's an effortless function. And of course it's a function or it's a attitude that serves the collective well-being. It's not like existing in a selfish way. It's, it's actually like a providing an effortless support to other life forms. But I think reclaiming this value also places into question the conventional value system that exists in our societies, no? based on work and based on accumulation and based on, on commodification of, of different things, based on our material belongings. I was wondering that maybe one of the ways to dissolve this nature culture division or this human exceptionalism is to, to search for nature inside of us first, as in remembering we are animals as well, and also as in remembering we are sources 
And also, of course, this has to be aligned with a change in our societies so that a wider variety of professions or of jobs or of roles are appreciated as such. This would make us less unsatisfied or my speculation is that if we could all perform what we can effortless do that in a way benefits the collective well-being I think it's only a speculative thought that we wouldn't extract nature so much because we would find the ways to supply our needs from inside I think this is important to make fertile space within us ending extractivism of natural resources starts by also not extracting ourselves and also not extracting others. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Center for Gender and Equality, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature at the Basel Academy of Art and Design, FHNW. Conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Cesar. Music S. McAvoy. Research team Tabea Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HDK, Basel, FHNW 2023.